invite you to take your Bibles as we open the Word of God to Revelation chapter 3. Our text this morning is verses 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible if you do not have your own. There's plenty in the room um, under the seat racks in front, at least three or so per, per row. Find a Bible there. All right, well, let's give our attention to God's Word being read. Revelation 3, beginning verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? We need to hear from you, God. And while your spirit has breathed out this word which lies open before us, it's living and active. We know that the barrier to us hearing is not anything outside of us, but it is within us. And so God, we pray by your spirit that you would break away Move away those things that would distract us from hearing from you. Help each of us to get past the fact that there is a man speaking and seek to truly listen for the voice of God. So God, we need you to do your work among us this morning. I cannot accomplish anything of eternal and lasting value, but by your spirit, you can do all things through your word. And we know your word is sufficient for it. So we pray, impress it upon our hearts that you would bring about your will in our lives and in this church. And we ask it for the glory of Jesus himself. Amen. Uh, perhaps you have heard the Latin proverb, Fortis Fortuna, ad, it's hard to say it, I'm not good with Latin, adiuvat, maybe you've heard this, uh, anyway, in English, the fortune favors the strong. And I, I, I say it in Latin because it, it shows up all over the place. So the saying has been traced back to, Pliny the Elder. It's been co-opted so many times since then by military units. So I, I say this with a view to the fact that there are so many uh, military uh, involved here this morning, and you've probably seen this in Latin on various patches. I know that it's been used uh, by all kinds of uh, uh, fighting companies all over the world. One that uh, I noticed was the 3rd Marine Regiment of Kenehoe Bay in Hawaii. So uh, Maybe you're familiar with that. 
Now, certainly this proverb is meant to be inspirational and motivating. Fortune favors the strong. But what is fortune, right? Luck, chance. Now, as believers, if we rightly understand the sovereignty of God, there really is no such thing as luck or fortune. And whatever we might imagine or even hope that fortune favors, this is where I'm going this morning, in the case of the church in Philadelphia, it would seem, not fortune, but God favors the weak. Now this, as with the six other letters that we find between chapters 2 and the end of chapter 3, Jesus' self-description here in each of these, his self-description expands on the, uh, on the uh, meaning, I guess you might say, of what John initially heard and saw at the beginning. You can look back at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where you see the tide of the text that we're in this morning where Jesus says about himself, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And we see in our text in chapter 3, verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus' self-description as the, the Holy One. He is the one uniquely set apart as Messiah, the Christ. And as the true one, also part of his self-description, he calls his own people to imitate him in character by trusting his very words. And the result of it all is that he alone, Christ alone, has the authority over life and death. Now, in this and other passages... Bible passages, I should say. When you see keys, that represents authority. And we're going to see this repeatedly as we move through Revelation. You can make sense of the imagery and words often in this book of Revelation by looking to the Old Testament. That's true here. Just in this language, it's like it's been borrowed from Isaiah 22:22. It describes there, you might not be familiar with the story, but Eliakim, who was a priest, he executed his duties and he served under the reign of King Hezekiah. But here, hear these words from Isaiah 22, 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. You see, Eliakim's priestly duty, that was a, a temporary one for a temporary kingdom. And so what Eliakim is and what Jesus is pulling out of that in his self description. He's pointing to Eliakim as a type of himself. Jesus is the greater reality here. Eliakim served a kingdom that was temporal. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. And he, as David's greater son, he alone possesses the authority to grant entrance to this eternal kingdom. And so that's the, 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 the setting Jesus describes. And then he proceeds to make his pronouncement. And he commends in this pronouncement. He commends. He affirms the church at Philadelphia. And so what we want to do this morning, brothers and sisters, is look at this affirmation. Look at it and see what it teaches us about how we endure today. I've chosen three simple headings and it's just a way for me to organize my thoughts. Hopefully it will help you as you follow along. 
three simple headings under which we'll seek to make some application from that church at Philadelphia for our own lives today. And, and here are my headings. Faithfulness, vindication, and reward. Faithfulness, vindication, and reward. Let's start with faithfulness. Now, when I'm asked to a, a officiate a wedding, I, I make it clear when we start talking about the putting the, the service together, I make it clear, and I try to do this as gently as possible, but I'm really not a fan of couples writing their own vows. Uh, and I, I say that. I mean, I understand that couples want uh, these vows to be personal and fresh sounding. But so often, I find in the verbal syrup, they fail to include those, those essential elements that acknowledge that it's an unbreakable vow of faithfulness unto death. And whether that's in plenty or poverty, whether in health or sickness, however challenging. The point I'm making here is that vows are not hard to keep when everything is easy. A vow that does not acknowledge difficulty and challenges and hardship is not very weighty at all. And here's my point. Because faithfulness is ultimately tested in adversity. Faithfulness is tested in adversity. The church at Philadelphia certainly experienced that adversity. Yet, yet we see that they remained faithful to the word of Christ. And I take it, as, as we look at this, I take it that it was a fight, this daily battle against an onslaught of, of opposition. And I can imagine that that fight probably left them exhausted. Verse 8, I know, Jesus says, I know that you have but little power. You have little power. And yet, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And what's that word? Well, that's explained in verse 10. You have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, again, we, we don't know exactly what they had to endure. And I, I think it's probable that it was slander, slander from ones claiming to be Jews but who are not. Uh, they're referred to in our text as the so-called synagogue of Satan. And they are probably a Jewish community that enjoyed very cultural and, and political favor. And being in opposition to the gathered believers there, lied about them. Now, it's not hard, I think, for a church to endure when the culture around a church is positively disposed towards it. And I would say that until very recently, and probably still continues to some degree, the church in this nation has, has enjoyed this general favor in the culture. And that general favor was even by, by people who have little regard for the gospel. Don't believe in Jesus. They think, well, church is a decent thing. Like I said, to some degree it's still the case, but I, I think the tides are slowly turning against the church. And my question as we think about the, the, the believers in this church in Philadelphia, this ancient city in the first century, second century, are we ready? Are we ready to patiently endure? I want you to notice in verse 8 that Jesus equates not keeping his word about faithful endurance. He equates that, that very fact of denying his name. Not keeping his word, not 
patiently enduring is akin to denying Jesus' name. And maybe that sounds startling to you. How do those things connect? And I would say it this way. Jesus, the Son of God, he is, according to John 1.1, the living Word of God, right? So to obey Jesus' word about anything at all is to agree with him, right? Is to patiently endure. But to disobey his word about anything at all is to actually deny his very name because he is the word of God. He is the one who declares himself to be the truth, John 14, 6. And so ultimately what, what you do when you do not believe Jesus' word, you're in fact embracing a lie and therefore denying his name. But Philadelphia, they didn't deny his name. They did not. And here's, here's the thing. I think enduring for them was possible because they knew in advance it was going to be difficult. Enduring is possible when you know advance that's going to be difficult. If you, if you expect it to be roses and streets smooth and paved, and well, when the problems come, it's going to rattle you. But if you think, even in good times, this is temporary. This, this can't, might not last. Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. He never promised that. In fact, he, the way he taught, he said you'd have to give up your personal autonomy in such a way as you, in fact, embrace the means of your own execution. His words, here. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Embrace the means of your own death. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And the things that we want, the things that we're naturally inclined to desire, comfort, prosperity, an easy time, favor at work, favor with our neighbors, favor from the government. We like those things. But if we hold those, if we hold on to those, and there's nothing wrong with receiving those things, but if we hold those as the, 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 the pinnacle of expression of God's faithfulness to us, then we're missing something. Jesus said, deny yourself. Jesus told his disciples that they should expect difficulty, not only from an internal pressure to disobey, right, the, the desires of the flesh, but also from an external perspective. In the world, you'll have tribulation, he said. So maybe for Philadelphia, having little power and in fact knowing it was in fact the reason that they endured and remained faithful. Because they were weak and knew it, they remained faithful. That is one of the many paradoxes of the Christian life, if you think about it. There, there are so many in the Bible, but just a few. According to Jesus, many who are first will be last in the last First, Mark 10, 31. He said the greatest in the kingdom is the servant. Mark 9, 35. And according to the Apostle Paul, like the, the seed, our perishable bodies must die to live. And here's where I'm headed. According to, uh, as it regards the whole idea of weakness, and this applies to Philadelphia, the Apostle Paul in uh, 
2 Corinthians 12, he, he talks about having this thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it was. But something that was physical suffering. It was so debilitating to him that he thought it would be a hindrance to his own ministry. And he fervently pleaded with the Lord to remove it. Three times he prayed it. And, and what he learned and ultimately lived out was a vital lesson from the Lord. The Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul's conclusion, therefore, what am I going to do with that? Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He got it. And I think that's what happened to the church in Philadelphia. They had little power, but they knew it. It drove them to depend on the Lord. And because they depended on the Lord, they kept Jesus' word. So let me ask you this morning, do you feel weak? Now, that might be physical. There are a myriad of possibilities of ailments in this room. We all have them, our little aches and pains, and some are, are greater than others. Some are as yet incured, uncured diseases, terminal illnesses. Do you feel physically weak? Do you feel mentally weak? Do you feel spiritually weak? And it's not a criticism. It's not a rebuke. Like we sang, how long, O Lord? Because there's suffering. Look forward till your glory fills our eyes. So we see all of that, and we got to wait. And so maybe this morning you feel spiritually weak. But let me, let me say this, brothers and sisters. Just like it was for the Apostle Paul, weakness is a good place for us to be. I don't mean morally weak, but what I mean is recognizing that you do not have it within you to accomplish the things that God has called you to do. And even if you have the greatest level of competence for whatever that thing is, whether it's parenting, whether it's doing your job, whether it's some aspect of ministry, whether it's preaching, teaching a Sunday school class, whatever you might have before you that is a task, that our attitude before the Lord is to say, I may know some things, but whatever is going to come out of this that is of worth, that, you're, that, that something good eternally is going to happen, you're going to have to do it. Because, listen, we don't have the power to do anything on our own. It is always the work of the Holy Spirit. Because you and I, you know, it comes to the very fundamentals of what we hope for in ministry, is this church, we want to see people's lives changed. I can't change your life. You can't change anyone else's life. But God does that. And so we constantly ask for God to do the thing that he's going to do, recognizing that we are powerless to do it, but God has all of the strength. It's a good place to be. Well, we dealt with Sardis last week. They had a reputation for being alive, but were in fact dead. See, they, they thought they were strong, but here in Philadelphia, they had little strength. 
I feel commended by the Lord Jesus. And that shouldn't be lost on us. Overconfidence is a sure way to be tripped up. The Apostle Paul warns, 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed, lest he fall. That idea of taking heed is, is really recognizing your own weakness, recognizing your utter dependence upon the Lord, both as a church, as a collective, and individually. We need the Lord. So we take heed. And when you do take heed, then you're going to have to look outside yourself for strength. And when you do that, here's the promise from Scripture, no temptation, no test has overtaken you that is not common to man. Everybody experiences it. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, tested but with that temptation, with that testing, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's not an invitation to walk close to the line of sin and say, God will get me out. The point here is, when you recognize your weakness, there isn't anything that can overtake you because you're not trusting in yourself. You're trusting in the Lord. Keeping Jesus' word about Patient endurance. That temptation to, to capitulate to the world, to, to merge onto the broad road that leads to destruction, that is ever-present, I think you'd agree. But the good news is there's an off-ramp, right? There's a way of escape recognizing that the strength of the Lord, that shines through in spite of our own weakness. And that's for us individually as believers, but it's also for the church. We cannot endure on our own, but we can do all things through Him who strengthens us. And we will be faithful as we trust in the Lord. Well, second, vindication. I see vindication here. Uh, one of the most ignored of the Ten Commandments is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I say that because it's so utterly neglected that, that many people don't even think it's a sin, bearing false witness. And, and, and all we have to do is turn on the news and, and look at a political speech, right? Politicians are particularly adept at this. And, and you see it all the time in the service of political expediency. They say damaging things about their opponents, maybe things that they heard and didn't verify. Or worse, they clearly know is a blatant lie, but they put it out there because, well, this will... This will put them down and raise me up. And that, that negative narrative is picked up by the news service. Very, undi uh, very difficult to unravel all of this. You know this. Slander is so very destructive. I, I've experienced it. It destroys friendships. It splits churches. And slander is a tool of Satan to hurt Jesus' disciples. And we know this already. It's just... Speaking generically, the world says about us and what we believe. We're starting to hear this now. We're hateful bigots. We're misogynistic. And they even invoke Jesus in their lies against what true Christian faith involves. The hope and confidence that we have is that the truth matters to Jesus. And in the end, and that's the key, in the end, 
he will make it clear who are his own in the end. We have to be patient for that. So we, we see in our text, we see this promise that Jesus makes to the church at Philadelphia that he will set the record straight. He says, those liars who claim to be on God's side would one day know the truth. Verse 9, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Now, they may indeed have been Jews. I think they probably were. But the point is that the true Jewishness, the true identity as the people of God, they're lying about that. So this synagogue of Satan, they're referred back to in chapter 2, verse 9. They're enemies of the church in Smyrna, those who believed that they were doing God's bidding, but they were actually working for Satan. So there they had slandered the church, bringing the wrath of Rome upon them, leading to their suffering, and in the case of Smyrna, their death that was prophesied for them. Well, here in Philadelphia, these Jews, likewise, were probably the cause of their suffering through slander. And Jesus promises to set the record straight. Behold, here's what he says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, when the enemies of the people of God, when we're told this is what's going to happen to them, and I know for us we're thinking, that'd be nice if that's tomorrow. But it's not. I will. We're not told when. It's future. I, I take it. It's in the end. But this, this, this language, it's, it's what the, the people of God is all, have always held on to, that, that God will one day set the record right. This vindication language is similar to that of Isaiah. Chapter 60, verse 14, The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Now, don't get this wrong. By no means will they be bowing to worship the true people of God. That's not what's in view here. But they will honor the people of God. They will learn, as Jesus says, that I have loved you. It will be a statement at the end of time. The Lord Jesus will say, these are my people. I have loved them. And I believe that will come in the same day and at the same time when Jesus himself is exalted tells us in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, I, I read this often, but I love it so much. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a glorious day that will be. Every tongue, the unbelieving scoffer will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The atheist will bow the knee and say Jesus Christ is Lord to their own horror. And the glory that the people of God will experience is derivative. That is to say, because Christ is exalted, all who are hidden with Christ in God, as it says in Colossians 3, 3, will experience that glory too, so that, as it says in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so united with him like this for eternity, the glory that the Father bestows upon the Son 
the Lord Jesus Christ, spills over to his own that he bought with his blood. All who have been set apart by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul explains this in 2 Thessalonians. God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this end, he called you through our gospel. To what end? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a promise for us. And again, that will be an absolutely glorious day. As God's people, expect to be slandered, expect to be called names, expect to be persecuted, expect it that at some point you're going to be held up as the model of everything that's wrong. When you remain faithful, that Jesus will set the record straight on that day. And that will be a glorious day. Well, finally, my last heading here is just simply reward. Reward. I, uh, I've seen this, and, and I've heard it from frequent flyers, that the larger air, airports, uh, in those larger airports, the airlines have these uh, special lounges for their certain passengers. Now, I'm not sure what's required to get in, uh, but in there, I'm told, there's that special rarefied environment. I'm told they pamper you and usher you to your next destination with minimal stress. There are beverages to enjoy. Oh, there's a, a, a beautiful menu of healthy choices where you can enjoy your meal on actual china with actual fork and knife. Beautiful. Now, the airlines, of course, have their own rules for who gets in there. Not all. I just can't go through that door. I have to be content to be like the rest of the cattle moving through the turnstiles and longingly look past the door when it should open. Right? I'm out with the rest of the unwashed masses, and I'll have to be content with that. But I think, what if the president of Delta or United, they found me wandering around, you know, at gate B32, looking for somewhere to plug in my phone and charge it up. And he said to me, why don't you join me in the lounge? Well, whatever was required for me getting in, I've, I've got it. The president is going to bring me into the, to the lounge. He's in charge. I get it. That's a really lame comparison. But, but the kingdom of God, it's not open to anyone who simply wants to be there. There is, in fact, a gatekeeper. And that's Jesus. He sets the terms of entrance. And they are these. Keeping his word and not denying his name. And he has told the believers in Philadelphia what is their reward. And we see this, verse 8, an open door to the kingdom. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Remember, Jesus has the keys here. He has the authority. So if he opens it, it stays open to the one he wants to welcome in. Now, there were these Jews, these liars who were the synagogue of Satan. They had set themselves up effectively as gatekeepers to the kingdom of God. And it reminds me so much of the Pharisees who opposed Jesus. They created all of these barriers to, to, to the kingdom of God, barriers of, of rules and laws that, that God never put in place. And they knew God's word, but they misrepresented it to the people. And Jesus rebuked them for what they were doing. 
He told them, you, you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, a believer, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Anybody that they invited into their realm, they basically made them a child of hell. They thought they were ushering in people into the kingdom of God, but they were in fact a barrier. And Jesus says, I'm holding for you an open door. Because I say so, you're coming in. Not the liars. What that reward means is deliverance from God's wrath. Deliverance from God's wrath. Now, there's an open door to the kingdom, but God is a judging God. He's not given up his hatred of sin. He's not said, don't worry about it, to the evil. No. God makes it clear, the scripture makes it clear, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that is Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There will come a day of judgment. So with that in mind, what is that judgment? Well, the Bible says that there will be a test of each man's work on that judgment day. He will, according to Romans 2, 6 and 7, he will render to each according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And so the reward for the faithful in Philadelphia, Jesus says, look, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That hour of trial, that's God's testing, the judgment, the testing the fidelity of, of people's lives, revealing the constancy, the, the integrity, the virtue, and the motive of their works. And because they rejected Jesus, those works will not pass the test. And you might think, what are these works? What, what are the works that, that people are supposed to do to find themselves in favor with God? According to Jesus, the primary work we should be doing is John 6, 29. This is the primary work. To believe in the one that God has sent. If you believe in the one that God has sent, if you believe in Jesus, then other works of obedience follow. But that's where it begins. You cannot do works of obedience. You cannot keep the law of God. You shall not kill. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You cannot keep that law if first and foremost in your mind isn't that Christ is the one who is sent by God. And that's what the Jews did. At least the examples in the New Testament, the Pharisees. Yes, many Jews came to believe, but the ones that were the establishment, right? They said, we keep the law of God. But they looked right past the Messiah of God. So, in verse 11, the Lord says this, Hold fast what you have. Hold fast to this faith. Hold fast to me so that no one may seize your crown. What you have, your faith in Christ, your dependence on him, don't, don't let go of that. That crown, Peter talks about in his letter, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the, the unfading crown of glory. So, for the believers in Philadelphia, indeed for all true believers, this is our confidence. Our, our works are not subject to judgment because Christ has already done so on our behalf. Right? We, 
Our works fail like everybody else's do. But because of what Christ has accomplished at the cross, taking our vile works, our sin, our corruption, judged there on his body in that place, and the divine exchange that happens when you've trusted in Christ, all your sin is heaped upon him, crucified in your place, and all of his perfect righteousness is given to you as a gift. And so when you stand before him, what's to judge? You have the perfect righteousness of Jesus on you. So hold fast to that. Hold fast to faith in Christ. So we have to cling to this promise, right? God has not destined us for wrath. First Thessalonians 5.9, he's not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, as a reward, escape God's judgment. It will happen that we pass through with the righteousness of Christ. And having been spared God's judgment, here's what we can look forward to. Believers are guaranteed an eternal home. Look at the language here. It's very figurative. The one who conquers, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. A pillar in the temple. Now, it sounds like it's an inanimate part of a structure. But the imagery is, is intending to give us this sense that the temple is figuratively the very dwelling place of God and a pillar there is a permanent part of that. You, in fact, become part of the permanent dwelling place of God. You have an eternal home with the Lord and it's irrevocable. Nothing can take it away. So you have an eternal home it's part of that reward. Escape God's judgment, an eternal home, but also an eternal identity. The ones who conquer have this. And here's more kind of obscure statements, but I think they make sense. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. There's this threefold description of this identity that we have. First of all, the name of God. I think you get this, but a name is not merely a label but a reputation. The name of God is the very character of God. That's what you have. You also get the name of New Jerusalem. A little more obscure. Again, we have to reach back to the Old Testament to find out what this is. In Ezekiel's vision of the temple, listen to this, and it's the same idea. Ezekiel 48, 35, and the name of the city from that time shall be the Lord is there. So the name of the new Jerusalem is the Lord is there. That's your name. You are where the Lord is. And then thirdly is Jesus' new name. Right? It says this, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And I, I take it that this is a mystery yet to be revealed, but we can find out more about this new name at the, towards the end of Revelation 19, chapter 19. I'll, I'll read this. We'll get there later, of course. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
So whatever that name is, it's one that is attached to Jesus and it is attached to the fact that you have been united with him in faith. Protection from God's wrath, an eternal home, and a new identity. All of these are rewards for faithful endurance. So as we wait, brothers and sisters, as we wait for Jesus' return, and that's really what the book of Revelation is about. It's preparing us. How are we going to endure? We'll face some difficult times. The church universal will face difficult times. Not all in the same place at the same time, but we can expect it. What do we do while we wait? Well, we remain faithful, and we do that by recognizing our weaknesses. When we pray, when you pray, let me encourage you never to say, hey God, here's all I'm going to do for you today. Here's how I'm going to make a difference in the world for you. I think it's better to say, I'm available. Do what you want through me. The power lies not in me, but in you. Only keep me faithful. Not I promise to be faithful. I'm not saying we shouldn't want to be faithful to the Lord, but I'm telling you, the one who keeps us faithful is the Lord. So we boast in our weakness before the Lord. So recognize your weakness and you will remain faithful. It's a good place to be. But know that there's a vindication coming. So we'll have to endure this life being lied about. And maybe that's going to increase in my lifetime. Probably will amp up in the extended lifetimes of my children and grandchildren. But Christ will make it right. And when Jesus returns in all the glory that is his, and all of us who have longed for his appearing, longed for that day, will be gathered with him and that glory will spill over on us and that will be a joyful day. And we'll see his enemies finally fully acknowledge that he is Lord. And know this, if you conquer, if you do remain faithful, if you do hold on to hope for that day, there is a great reward. And you may be a nobody in this life, and you may not have a very fancy house, but you're going to dwell with God forever. You may not have much of a name in this world or be very important, but you're going to have the name of God written on you. And you will be in fellowship with Him for eternity. So, this is a church, sorry, this is a message for the church of Philadelphia. It's a message for, for all the churches, and it's a message for us today. And we say with the Spirit of God, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, there's a glorious day coming, an old hymn. Oh, that day will be glory, glory for me. It'll be glory for us because it's glory for your Son, our Savior Jesus. And, and so God, keep us, we pray. Keep us faithful to that day. Help us to patiently endure. Because really the reward that we want is nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. 
you promise that to us. So, hold on to us. Hold us fast. And we know it may be long. And sometimes we'll lament and say, how long, O Lord? But we know there's coming a day when your glory will fill our eyes. So keep us to that day. And we pray it in Christ's name.